Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. The days of the Cold War and the threat of communism are over. Or are they? Mick McCoy's novel, What the Light Reveals, takes us back to the time when idealism led people to betray others, spy on others, and change national allegiances. So, Mick, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, you actually have a personal connection to this issue. It harks back to the days of the Petrov affair, but you've got a family link. I have, and... uh I would probably say because of that family link that it wasn't the communists in Australia, at least, that were doing the betraying and spying. Or at least they didn't, weren't doing it by themselves. There were plenty of others involved as well. Indeed there were, but your particular family acquaintance my, with this? My uncle, Dave Morris, was one of those very idealistic communists. Uh, he was an engineer in the Second World War, which gave him access to secrets, or so ASIO thought. And when... Um, Petrov accepted Menzies' £5,000 back in the mid-50s to uh, hand over some papers and defect to Australia. One of those papers had my uncle's name on it. As a result of that, he was called before the Espionage Royal Commission a couple of times and uh, allegations were put to him that he was passing spies to the, uh, p- passing secrets to the Russians. And this is basically what informs your novel, your character. This is a work of fiction, but your character suffers the same sort of fate. He's brought before, at the opening of of the novel, uh, before the commission, uh, it is Conrad Murphy. Mr Murphy, you are a member of the Communist Party of Australia. Yes, I am, but I've never been an undercover or illegal member, and I don't know of any such status. You admit, then, that at all events and at all times you've always been an avowed communist. Yes, when the company was such as to make it worthwhile to discuss political issues. But when you thought it was not worthwhile, you did not disclose your Communist Party membership. I don't go around announcing my membership to the world, no, but I don't deny it either. Surely that is the relevant issue. It is up to us to determine relevance, Mr Murphy. So it's almost Mm. like a fishing expedition. Uh, You know, right back at the beginning, one of the first pieces of research I did was to go and look at the transcripts of the Royal Commission and their available back in the day uh, as paper versions (laughs) at the uh, State Library. And reading through them, I was just astonished at the lack of objectivity associated with the questioning from the Queen's Council and all of the commissioners. They, you wouldn't get away with it today. But you also see assumptions made by Mm. the community as well. And there's an encounter with... um well, hotel uh, keeper in, yep. in terms of welcome, and then uh, that hotel keeper has put words in Conrad's mouth, so to speak. Pretty much, and and look, that's that was important for me. I guess one of the core uh, targets and themes of the book was to illustrate how the events of that Royal Commission disenfranchised people, not just from their own ideals but from work, because Conrad was sacked serially from any job that he got thereafter, from community, from even family. Well, you go into this a little. We have then ASIO spying on people Mm. um, and, yes, disenfranchising them, making them aliens in their own community, but also the assumptions people are making because even Conrad's own family 
sort of yep. betrays him. Yeah, that's a fiction. <laughs> that, that's a fiction. But it's perfectly understandable. Yes. You don't subscribe to our values, therefore I'll report you. Yeah, and look, one of the one of the key things that I was trying to get across is that all of us, we belong to tribes, a number of different tribes, and each of those tribes is associated with a particular faith. Oftentimes, the, the faith that we hold in association with one tribe conflicts with the faith that we hold in association with another tribe. We belong to them both, and we often make these complex moral judgments about which bit of our faith will we sell off to protect what we feel is the dominant faith. Well, this then becomes interesting when uh, Conrad and his wife, Ruby, move to Russia. Mm. They take their adopted son, Alex, and their natural son, Peter, but they're faced with the same problems. Well, they are. And, you know, one of the things I sort of say about it is while ASIO in Australia can be an inconvenience, the KGB will kill you. <laughs> uh, so there's a difference. <laughs> um, expat friends, exiles from Canada and England mostly, but some Americans, some New Zealanders, had told Conrad and Ruby of their own experiences of being watched. They had all come to Russia by choice, often invited like Conrad, strong and true supporters of socialism. Nevertheless, every one of them had stories of of KGB, a, li- a liaison from Inno. In Otdell, the yep. Foreign Department might appear at the door months or years after they'd first arrived, or a work colleague might suddenly take an interest in them, invite them out for drinks, although their paths never crossed either at work or outside it. Yeah. So they can't find a home anywhere. That's right. Basically. They they escape Australia in search of some place where they can exercise their ideals with freedom, only to find that it's no better and probably worse. In Moscow. So the disillusionment then that follows mm. that sort of thing. But they've made life choices. They're bringing up their two sons in this new environment. And that's why it was important. And another difference between reality and fiction is that in reality, both of my Uncle Dave and Aunt Bernice's sons were adopted. In my fictional account, the older boy is adopted, the younger one is natural born because that provides me with greater dramatic uh, Well, allegiance conflict. there, yes. yep. uh, which goes to love and connection and all of these other sorts of things. By the way, how long did your uncle and auntie spend in Russia? Oh, 15 years or so. 15 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and in real life, uh, Uncle Dave died of natural causes, well, cancer, mm. Um Aunt Bernice and younger boy Len came back to Australia while the older boy Paul, who gave me lots of anecdotes for the story, stayed there to finish his photography degree like uh, like Alex in the story. In like this Alex story. In the story. But here you've got another sort of situation arising. You've got the whole notion of family dynamic yep. and families spy on each other. Families have they secrets do. from each other. Yep. They're a nation unto themselves. They are a nation unto themselves and ultimately... What the book is about is that family is the most important tribe. And that's what my characters eventually Mm, (laughs) come to Come to realise. But you've also got a a sort of um, informed spying, so to speak. Um, There is, uh, well, Conrad and Ruby return to Australia, but they ask Valentin to keep an eye which is another word for spying. It is. On, on Alex. Yes, and Valentin is a Russian who is uh, intelligent beyond his obvious station of mechanic 
uh, and he and he confesses. So that in the in the section you read, he confesses very early on in his relationship with Conrad that he's informing on him. Yes, and, and works and for and the that KGB. Is yeah, yes. and that's just what. And it's better you know that I'm doing it than you don't. Mm. <laughs> One of the scenarios is that that Peter is actually killed in an accident. The natural son Alex is involved in that. We'll let the reader discover that for themselves. Mm. But then this gives Alex a motivation for staying in Russia because he wants to fulfil an obligation that he feels to spread Peter's ashes at Odessa. But he's hampered in this um, sort of goal. Um, But it speaks to this notion of idealism, objectives, and all of these sorts of things that inform nations in some way. Well, they do, and... You know what I what I gave Alex at the end was what I gave Conrad at the beginning a little, a train ride or a train journey, to a place where some form of destiny was to be played out, and both of them had their troubles. Well, troubles fulfilling that destiny, yeah. but the destiny in some ways is an imagined one. Yeah, it's one that you construct for yourself. Particularly in Alex's case, he doesn't have to do it, but he does it because of his developing understanding of who he is and what's important to him. Well, these notions of loyalty and values that we develop, and when they are to other nations, then we mm. get all sorts of conflicts of betrayal and allegiance. And and the Russians are an interesting tribe, I find. I mean, they they uh, delight in their struggle. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the core Russian... Uh, points of view and personalities is the struggle and there's there's some great stories written about russians not from a fictional perspective but in a non-fictional perspective about how they actually found life easier pre-perestroika than post because they knew what their life was about in the old days now there's corruption is is not so uh clearly delineated as it was in the old days. A greater degree of uncertainty. I, yeah. I was just thinking the the, uh, the train ride is also particularly Russian, isn't Very it? Russian. <laughs> yeah. Very Russian. Very Russian, Anna Karenina and all of that yeah. sort of thing. But times change. I mean, we get uh, Conrad sending letters uh, back to Alex, yep. and these letters actually suggest another loyalty, if I can put it that way, in terms of Conrad's talking about the weather, the sand, the warmth beneath his yep. feet, and all of these sorts of things. Very natural, simple things that uh, are perhaps more important to us than than some of the ideals we hold fast to. Well, it allows us that sense of identification. Yeah, I mean, you come back, and even with all the diesel fumes at Tullamarine, when you <laughs> get off the plane, yeah. you can actually smell. Australia, Australia, the gum trees, the eucalyptus, and the starkness of the light. It's something that, which is partly where the title came from. Partly, it's just uh, what the light reveals is your true self, and it's uh, light's important in the first scene and in the final scene. Indeed, the other thing, on a much broader issue, then, what are you actually saying about? Um, those sorts of ideologies that we subscribe to. If you look at communism, it's virtually been seen as defunct in in some ways. I think ideologies, whichever they are, get overtaken by the individuals that find themselves in the positions of power and the types of individuals who seek that power. 
So rising to the top in Russia, you'll have similar personalities that you have in rising to the top in America or Australia. But what does it also say about things like the the ideology behind, say, um, democracy? Is that simply another uh, sort of approach that will fade with time? Oh, we are, I'm not going <laughs> to. I don't know. That's the, the the clearest answer I can give on that. But what what seems to be common to all ideologies is that those who lust for power um, exercise their own version of the ideology based upon their lust for power. Mm. The book is uh, What the Light Reveals. It is, in fact, attached to our own history, uh, Australia's yeah. history, the Petrov Affair and Mick's own family history. The notion of identity, the notion of values, beliefs, ideologies and what we subscribe to, and, in fact, the course of change that occurs. And then how do we then accept uh, that change in ourselves because the, the disillusionment that must occur... Yeah, fairly extreme, and um, particularly for Conrad because he was the true believer and he had to overcome that or, or realise that it wasn't true. But also in doing so, he's taken his family with taken him. Taken his family with him and caused all sorts of untold pain and grief. Well, they've had to pay a certain price, but they can still continue discovering for themselves. They can. The book, What the Light Reveals, the author, Mick McCoy, and it's a transit lounge release, Jan. Well, thank you. Now, it's also subscribe a week. One, two, three, four, five, break down, baby. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. This is Bea to Base Camp. Welcome to the Little Red Slangy Treehouse. As you said, I'm down at the East West Tunnel ticket, as it usually does, starts at 5.30am. Uh, the Lincoln Melbourne Authority have come here in the middle of the night and set up another drill rig here on Gold Street. The police were pretty keen to defend that with all their resources this morning. And I think for Australians, in order to know ourselves, really fully know ourselves, in order to mature, we need to understand Aboriginal culture. We need to embrace it and realise that in coming here, you're now part of the longest continuing culture in the world. We need your support. Subscribe today. Call 94198377 now. Well, back to Published or Not... In June, the Faber Writing Academy is having a fiction writing workshop with Sophie Laguna. Now, she won the Miles Franklin with Eye of the Sheep and has a new and much acclaimed novel, The Choke. She's leading this workshop where characters, plot, theme and structure will be explored. Just wondering, have you ever been to a writing workshop? What did you learn? Did it help you in shaping your novel? Or do you think... Writing is easy. <laughs> That's the title of an e-book written by Gabriel Daly and Joan Kerr. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. Before we get into the minefield of how two writers come up with one book, let's do the plot of Writing is Easy. So, it's a writing workshop. Who are the writers leading it? Well, there's Marcus Goddard, who is a writer of popular fiction. Um, he, none of his fiction had hurt him deeply to say it was as popular as his first book or as valued for its literary qualities. And then there's Lillian Bracegirdle. Lillian Bracegirdle is a, an experimental poet and a performance artist, a very, very big personality, 
and she and Marcus unfortunately clash quite badly. Here's the description of what Marcus thinks of Lillian's work. Yes, Marcus is very catty about Lillian and Marcus says that Lillian had a couple of impenetrable experimental novels greeted admiringly by the literati who given her a reputation that endured in spite of her lack of output. The world had been waiting for a new work for Lillian from a long time. In the meantime, she went about the literary traps, doing readings from works in progress. <laughs> uh, there's also through the bo- book an example of Lillian's, as a 25-year-old, poetry-winning award. Now, this is the snap of one of her poems. Ooh, ooh, I spanks the old man's withered shanks. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> mm, you really tend to wonder about that poetry. Now, they've both got a significant other in their writing lives. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I'll stay with Marcus. He has Lester Lidicott, who is his assistant editor. Uh, Marcus is getting very tired of Lester. He thinks Lester takes liberties. According to Lester, his editing is practically rewriting Marcus's work that he says is ungrammatical and badly spelt and doesn't make any sense at all. So we have two people there who are coming perhaps to loggerheads in terms of their relationship. Look, I love the fact that Marcus never... He's made it a rule of never rereading what he has written. (laughs) Never. (laughs) It's left to Lester. And Lillian's significant other. Oh, Marjorie Hopper is Lillian's significant other and she's a very different character. Marjorie is a very prim, sort of secretarial, schoolmarmish kind of person who does her best to keep Lillian's rather effusive personality under under control. And they're both not very happy. They've come along to the walk- workshop, but they're not really happy with their significant others mm, themselves. No. Perhaps looking around at maybe other jobs they could. Oh, so we've got the leaders, we've got mm-hmm. the helpers. Who would come to this workshop? I can't believe that Desma has come twice. Oh, Desma. Desma is one of those very, very earnest writers who's writing a novel based on her family history, which is not particularly interesting. And um, Marilyn Boots. I don't know whether her novel's going to be very, very interesting because she's pretty shy. Oh, Marilyn's got hidden depths, though. Mm. Marilyn comes from a... She's a mother, she's got a very unpleasant husband who doesn't give her much leeway at all. And during the course of this workshop, Marilyn does find herself. She has some capacity. To well, write. in contrast to these two, oh, may I say wishy-washy women? <laughs> There's Helen West. <laughs> Helen is very good-looking, so, of course, Marcus gets his eye on her mm. quite early. And Helen has won a literary award with her first novel and has now got a grant to write another one um, under the mentorship of... Trader Cheeseman. Trader Cheeseman, that's right, who's written books called Hang Hang Meat and what's the other one? (laughs) I can't remember now. It was along those lines. Yes. So she's writing in a a, a respected genre of literary pornography. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's right. There's two men at this workshop. Uh-huh. Well, do you want to start with, how about we start with John Brow? Oh, I'll do John Brow because John Brow is actually based on someone that we knew <laughs> when we, the old days we did Arkado, a man who believed you didn't need to drink water, you could live on carrots and something else. Very eccentric. And um, he 
he goes there because he wants to write a book how to become incredibly fit in 26 days and so, he just he needs points that's all he needs he says yeah, yes so he's he actually has got the dot points yep. but he just needs you know to put it into a book and he's ready to write 15,000 words a day and finish this book in a week that's right that's his that's purpose it. yep and then there's Rex Random. Oh, good old Rex. Um, Rex is writing very, very gritty crime fiction <laughs> <laughs> about dames and things like that. Very, very bad Chandler. And, of course, through the story we get examples of each of these beginner writers We had writing. fun with those. Oh, we had a lot of fun with those. Yeah, I had a lot of laughs with this. <laughs> <laughs> so where's this workshop taking place? Well, it's at Gagebrook, which is a glorious um, country house and extensive grounds run by Mandy and Andrew. And Andrew is a superb cook. Mm. And Mandy had some connections through her, her father's, one of his wives, um, with the surgeons. They had wives of surgeons. They've had oh. many different groups. So now they're, they're, this is their second go with the writers. Now, it's set in the United Kingdom, and I think we have to say that because a lot of the manners and you know sort of the propriety of you know what's happening here is is it's got that english humor about it <laughs> and uh well we've got um wife mandy helping chef uh alexander uh, andrew rather and there's also janie the young janie who's just on school holidays Janie is the voice of reason really she's <laughs> she's observing these things and saying things like I don't see why writers can't behave well. I can't imagine Simone de Beauvoir dribbling chocolate all down her front, you know. Like I, uh, and they don't behave well, do they? <laughs> oh, no. Those pre-dinner drinks just lead to despair and mayhem. Oh, <laughs> But this young Janie, she's keeping a diary and she's not jealous of her school friend who's gone off to wear a bikini in Bali at all because, you know, she's involved with murder and blackmail. Who was murdered? Who was blackmailed? Oh, they'll have to read, read it to learn. <laughs> look, yeah. this is what it's so that look. There are so many funny instances in this. You know, there's the um, the, the the book reviews. People who write book reviews, they they're literary critics, failed novelists, and they're never as good. You know, they're, they're <laughs> just oh dear. Um, the problem of writing that that second novel after the first, and we have pseudonyms. You know, should you or shouldn't you use them? Blackmail, plagiarism, publicity is all publicity, good publicity, because you know this, 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 the, the police are involved. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it was just a fantastic story, and just some of the comments. Lillian, who is the uh, the female, the female leader, the author, she's described as an obese elderly woman with catastrophic body fat, sky-high <laughs> blood pressure and the general fitness level of a crippled wombat. Well, that's what John said about her. <laughs> yes. Lillian would never say that about herself. Not, no, but John that's John's that. assessment. <laughs> so the author of this is Gert Loveday. Mm. Now, we better establish, because in, in the studio we have Gabriel Daly and Joan Kerr, who Gert Loveday is. Well, she's the writer of all the books we write together and she's a different person. We had a love day, a Cornish name in our family somewhere and then Gert was a kind of combination of Kerr, Joan's surname and Gabrielle, so that's how the name originated. But then we thought about Gert 
Love Day, and we've decided, or we've come to realise, she looks a bit like Eleanor Bron, a former English actress, very tall, lean, with cascading grey curly hair. She's got a lot of very large dogs. We think they might be Irish wolfhounds, and she does smoke. And uh, she likes a drink, as you would imagine. Oh, well, everybody <laughs> drinks in this book. <laughs> so how do you do it? Two women, you know, quite often um, co-writers take on different characters. Is this what you've done? Not at all, no. No, we um, we first started it as a sort of spring-off from NaNoWriMo. We did NaNoWriMo um, one year individually, and the next year Gabriel said, why don't we do one together? And so we did it under NaNoWriMo conditions and we've written all our books that year. So we write it in a month. One of us starts and writes 1,500 words and emails it to the other. The other has to go on from there. We don't talk in advance about what the plot is or we we possibly know the setting and a few names of characters. So one will write 1,500 words and send it to the other. The other has to bounce off that. Whatever you get, you have to work with. You can't change it. You can't go back and edit it. You can't say, I don't want to go there. You have to go with what you've got. And so it's just such an incredibly freeing thing for the imagination. Would that presume an affinity between you regardless of the story you're creating? Well... I'm the big sister, so I've got pictures of holding this tiny little girl with a black bob in my hand. But I think we grew up with very much the same reading matter. When we were about seven, we were reading P.G. Woodhouse and our father had an extensive library. But I'd have to say that it sort of came about because I was living in Singapore and we did it all by email. Joan was in Australia, so it was all done by exchange of email and that's how we've continued. Now, look, I'm really surprised about that. So when you've actually got it there, you Mm. must go back and edit it then because it's it's a fine piece of writing. And people do say they can't tell. Ah. Who's written what? Yeah. You know, when the when the person changes. We do go back and edit. We throw but not things out. Not as we go. Not no. as we go. No, no. So it has to be like NaNoWriMo, complete free fall. You can't stop. You can't ring the other one up and say, I don't want to go there. I want to do something else. You have to go with what you've got. So even if you've got a vague idea in your mind, I think this is going to happen, then you get your email and you think, what am I going to do with this? Where am get I going? Get out of this, yes. <laughs> get out of this, yes. Now, it's an e-book. It's yeah. not, it's, uh, is there a decision for that? No. Our first book, uh, Crane Mansions, was had quite a bit of interest from literary agent, quite a well-known literary agent, Jenny Darling. You've probably heard of mm-hmm. her. And we had a few toing and froing, but they really wanted to, us to change the book considerably. Make it a children's yeah, book because so it's got a, a main character who is no. a child. Yes. The market has its constraints, so in the end we decided we'd go that way. Uh, I have had a look at your website, and it's very much Gert's website. Yes, yes. And you know, you're telling, and but you've you've got a lot of reaction to the book from um, America and yes, UK, and yes, mm, yes. I'm, I'm not surprised because it yes. really is very funny. <laughs> so, how do you publicise it? That's that's very difficult. Um, you know, there are so many books out there, both self-published and otherwise. That the real difficulty is getting your book heard in all that noise and we you know we do have a a faithful little audience but it's a little audience you know Mm. so we would like to be considerably better known of Mm. course than we are but um it's difficult and we haven't gone down the track of really trying to 
get out there and push it. And that's one reason why we haven't got a hardback because we don't want to be running around trying to shove hardbacks on, make all our friends buy our book and things like that. We just felt we want the book out there. We want people who would enjoy it to read it. We want it to be available. And we're really not prepared to go down the track of the really hard yakker of trying to push, push, push the book. Well... If we've interested listeners into um, looking at the book and really laughing at the book, <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you've got any interest in writing, it is so funny. Okay, how can listeners get an e-book copy? Amazon. Amazon. Yep. Amazon. Is that yes, the name? and the of course way? we should we should um, puff our other books. Crane Mansions, a novel about the redeeming power of cake. That was our first book, <laughs> and The Art of the Possible, which is about dodgy politicians and a wonder youth drug. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a delight with speaking with Gabriel Daly and Joan Kerr about. Well, together they make up Gert Love Day, and the major book we've been talking about today is. Oh, Writing is easy. Is it, David? Not necessarily so. But, you know, it all depends on you know how much of an editor you are of your own work. Mm. Yes, Indeed. yes, yes, yes. Look, lots of fun. Cold War. Cold War. War with Mick McCoy and What the Light Reveals, which was from Transit Lounge. And Writing is Easy with Gert Lovedale. Well, thank you, everybody. Listen in next week. Cheerio.